welcome to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. I'm Stephen McGregor. This is episode 39. What do babies, astronauts and executives have in common with Oracle's Yazad Dalal? So welcome back. It's been just a week since episode 38 on mindful entrepreneurship with Malta Cron. Uh, listening figures are still strong for that episode. A lot of good feedback so far on that first episode of this theme of starting up. So everything within regards to entrepreneurship and how it connects to health and well-being. But keen to keep the momentum going on this podcast and uh, and excited also to share this great conversation with, with Yazad, who I've known for a few years now, actually, and he has a lot to share and a lot of insights that I'm sure you'll enjoy. So more on that episode in a few moments. Just a very quick catch-up on some of the things that are going on here in Barcelona. So the last time that we talked essentially on things in the Leadership Academy Barcelona was the end of March. So April and May have been, you know, busy months again. And again, very grateful for a lot of the client work that we have within this very ambiguous world. And just want to mention a couple of projects that are going on, um, mostly internal initiatives, right? But, you know, a lot of the things that I learn from these internal programs, they do make their way into the public domain in terms of a lot of the writing and a lot of the things that I share on social media. Um, but certainly some things that are different and some things that are building on the past. Um, very excited and again, very privileged to get started again with Telefonica. So Telefonica, such a big part in, in my story and the story of the Leadership Academy of Barcelona. You know, going back to 2012 and teaching all attendees at Universitas Telefonica, this fantastic corporate university just north of Barcelona. And that really, you know, honed a lot of my skills and actually finding out what were the messages of health and well-being that were most, um, you know, appropriate, most interesting to busy professionals. Um, you know, I was very lucky starting in 2012 to teach, um, you know, about three or 4,000 people a year from Telefonica. And that ran for, for several years. And it's been great to start with them again after a couple of years of, of not doing so much. And, and, and also the transition that they have now with virtual learning. So we launched a new course, which is called Wellbeing for a Flourishing Working Life. So mixing a lot of the messages that we've been delivering and during the pandemic, you know, starting with um, uh, resilience and then moving into a lot of the kind of classic theory that we've covered over the years in sustaining executive performance and chief wellbeing officer in terms of recovery uh, and reform. Um, that's the second and third um, episodes in, in this four-step series that we have with them. And then some new content looking at reimagination, right? You know, looking at the, the opportunity that we have in the world today, uh, looking at some of the classic theory um, from the work on human flourishing and how we can use that, you know, even going back to philosophers like Aristotle, Confucius, and actually, you know, recognising that such a simple question like, what is a good life? You know, it's possibly the greatest question in, in human history, and it sounds like a, a simple question, but of course, it's very difficult to answer and is very complex and, and many different layers to that. So that's the programme that we've delivered with Telefonica, and it's been a lot of fun doing that in both English and Spanish. I actually have the fifth edition of that program starting in uh, two hours. So I better get ready for that. Um, today is the 1st of June and, it, and it's wonderful to be in this fantastic um, summer month. Uh, and I hope you're all well and safe wherever you are in the world and the weather is appropriate for the month of June. I know only too well, being from Scotland, what that can sometimes be like. Um, the other program that we are working with has been with Arla Foods. So uh, we had a great conversation with Klaus Flensborg uh, episode 36, I think it was, in the thriving business theme. I've been working a lot with Arla in the past several months. Uh, and this is an initiative that, uh, again, we, we shared on social media uh, a couple of months ago when we kicked it off. It's called All About Us, All About Me. And the difference here is that I'm not on delivery, but I've curated a series of speakers and people that I've worked with and worked for, actually. So some of my clients over the past couple of years that I felt they've had a lot to share uh, and so it's been great to invite these speakers in within the overall series that's been running now for a couple of months. And so we had Bosi Sasani talking about trust and diversity and inclusion, ex-Uber now more recently in Deliveroo, 
Uh, we had uh, Tobias Hauk and, and Danny Markwick from SAP. We had uh, Dan Strode from Santander. And we're going to finish next week with Rory Simpson. So my co-author on the Chief Wellbeing Officer book, a friend for many years, uh, and a client, of course, the Telefonica. And he's going to finish the series next week. So that's been a lot of fun and really interesting work also working with Meta in Arla and, and creating a series of content also that we've called Signature Moves, which is actually, okay, we're going to listen to an inspiring talk with a thought leader, but how do we take that forward in our day-to-day? So we're providing that guidance in the form of different methods and different things that people can implement within their own daily professional working lives. And this could be on a team level or an individual level. So the Arla program has been a lot of fun. What else? Um, the Glasgow School of Art, I was uh, immensely proud. And, and again, it was a full circle moment. I, I actually um, I interviewed for an undergraduate position at the Glasgow School of Art in 1994. I still have the award letter, actually, that I was delighted to receive. And I went in another direction at that time. But I was named an honorary professor of health and well-being at the Glasgow School of Art uh, last August. But of course, with the world in the state that it's in just now, everything has been very slow. Uh, but we're finally looking now at activating that role. And the first thing that I'm very excited about is curricular development. So we're actually going to develop a master's course within health and well-being, which will be delivered within this context of design and innovation within this fantastic school in Glasgow. Uh, and I can't wait to get back home to, to Scotland and to, to spend some time in Glasgow and really take that, that forward. And then also just finally on the school front, interesting, I have my first teaching appearance at ESA Business School here in Barcelona, which also has been a big element in my development in health and well-being the past several years. And I'm there um, tomorrow, actually, for the first time in 18 months. And that's hard to believe, but uh, I'm very excited about going back and, you know, at the very least just um, being face-to-face with, with an executive programme and, and, and just trying to deliver that experience within health and well-being which is, which is so important today. Uh, it always has been, but now more than ever. And that leads us very neatly, actually, to this episode with, with Yazad. So I've known Yazad, actually. I met him three years ago, I think. Um, I've been delivering an Oracle um, Senior Executive Program at, at ESA Business School for the past 10 years. You know, I think in total there's been almost 1,500 execs from Oracle who have been um, through that course, Accelerating Executive Insight, uh, and I've been delivering work in, in health and well-being and performance for that in, in those 10 years. And so Yazad was um, in one of the cohorts uh, three years ago, uh, and we've kept in touch since then. And he's been working in the human capital space in Oracle for sev- you know many, many years, actually 20 years, I think, in, in total in the human capital space. And I think uh, almost 10 within, within Oracle and, and lots of insights to share. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. He's a really charismatic individual and sharing a lot of cases um, from Oracle and also from entrepreneurs. So, you know, he has also the role of an ambassador for Oracle Startups, which is about providing uh, flexible cloud-based services to organizations that are scaling. So he's got a lot to share and we talked about different cases. You know, the Italian Post case that he talks about early in the conversation, I thought that was fascinating because what that, I think, allows us to do, or we see through the lens of that Italian Post Office case, is that because of the need for health and well-being, you know, a harder measure on health and well-being, of course, because of COVID and, and really understanding how that affects the transmission of the virus, then that gives us an opportunity to really link health and well-being with business operations. So that came to me during the conversation, even though we didn't dig into that more, but I noted that down and I think there's an opportunity there also with COVID and and just having that harder measure, right, of of health and well-being, how that links to the day-to-day business. Uh, We also talked about um, the importance of just you know, agile processes, so bootstrapping, and actually how you can be more entrepreneurial within a big corporate like Oracle. So he shares a case also on uh, reporting and how there was a big stretch goal on on reducing the time of quarter-end reporting and what they got to. And I think the bigger one also to to, to finish on is, 
is that a lot of the entrepreneurs that he is now coming into contact with and he has a real passion for trying to help these entrepreneurs and, and scaling their business and helping with their ideas is that they're looking for a better world, right? It's not just entrepreneurs that are looking to grow or to sell stuff or to make money. And yeah, these things are important, but they are mission-driven. And, and I think this connects also with the conversation with Malta uh, and previously with Elisa Goldenberg last year uh, in the community theme at the end of 2020, is that we have these change makers, entrepreneurs who want to do well, but also do good. And I think that comes through. And then also regarding the very interesting title of this episode, which is very much down to Yazat, <laughs> you got to listen to the end to see what that means and how we can answer that. But I'll leave it there for now. Again, many thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you next week with the final episode on this Q2 theme of starting up. But for now, enjoy episode 39 with Yaza Dalal. What do babies, astronauts and executives have in common? As ever, keep well, keep safe. Bye for now. Ciao. So welcome to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast, Yazad. So how are you doing today? You're in London, right? I am in London. And as you would expect, Stephen, it is raining. That's a shame. It's a shame. I know exactly what that British weather is like. Are you working from home, I guess? Yeah, I am working from home, which, uh, to be honest, I, I'm used to doing because part of my job is travel. And so when I wasn't traveling, I would often try and spend as much time working from home as possible. So that's just become the norm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things, right, that has changed with many others during the pandemic. And we had uh, a theme in Q3 of last year on travel and some great guests there from McKinsey, Uber and Hilton. Uh, how much do you miss it? I mean, are you glad to be at home? You're grateful for that, but miss a little bit of travel? What's the balance there? Uh, I have to admit that I have spent the last 10 or 15 years trying to craft a career that included travel. I miss it tremendously. And um, I, I probably have the world's least quality mask because my mask is actually an airplane eye mask worn upside down over my mouth. <laughs> yeah, so that's just, that's, you know, it's interesting. How, how much I miss it. Yeah, I mean, you, you get these, um, you get companies that are catering kind of air, airline meals and stuff like that, right? Because people have got <laughs> real withdrawal symptoms of being up in the air. And and with your career in in, in, in Oracle and, you know, and, and being a New Yorker and then living in Singapore and, and now in London, then, then I'm sure, yeah, you, you do miss a lot of that, that travel. So you've worked in, in human capital, right, in that human capital space for over 20 years. But I guess the past 12 months or so, or, or past the 12 months now, just like as for all of us, has been something unique uh, because of the pandemic. What's, what's been some of the impacts and the trends that you can tell us about within that space of human capital? The most pleasant surprise, and it shouldn't have been a surprise, but I think the most pleasant thing that we recognized, you know, the part of the business at Oracle that I'm in is, is to lead our HR software business. I'm responsible for, for our business growth. And so we have these you know, thousands of customers around the world who are uh, running their HR processes on Oracle Cloud. And probably the immediate thing that we heard from all the heads of HR, these chief human resource officers uh, in February, March, and April last year was, my number one priority is taking care of my people. Everything else is secondary to that. And I think that was a really positive thing to hear. We didn't hear companies, at least the people we were speaking to, were not saying, oh my gosh, I've got to figure out how to cut costs. I'm sure that was part of it because, you know, for many organizations, it was also an existential threat. Very pleasant to hear that, that theme of how do we take care of our people? How do we make sure that we know who is at risk? How do we make sure we know who is sick? How do we track that? How do we provide them with the maximum benefits available to them? Maybe, you know, a lot of employees, especially younger generations where they don't have families, probably don't invest as much time to learn and know what's available to them. So how do these organizations bring resources to their people? I think that was uh, something that we saw immediately. But then I think over time, as organizations uh, quickly shifted to remote or hybrid working or the, the governments of the countries they were in forced them to do that. I think the second piece, which was 
an unintended consequence, uh, which was always there in progressive organizations and then became universal, was countenancing for the first time that all employees have a home life. We don't like to admit it. We like to pretend that when we come to the office that your work persona is your persona, which of course is false. And so for the first time, we are seeing people's living rooms, we are seeing their children's in, in, on, on camera, we are uh, hearing the delivery person, because now suddenly everyone is dependent on delivery, ringing the doorbell, and you've got to jump up in the middle of a call no matter what. I, I think countenancing that we all have that. And then also recognizing um, that expectations change really rapidly. Uh, that, that's probably the third thing, which is, again, progressive organizations and, and, and progressive people who always need to have the fastest tools or, or most up-to-date things, um, we're always on the cutting edge, but now became universal. How do we move fast even if we're not used to it? How do we get people the things they need immediately? How do we take some processes that were unnaturally drawn out and just cut them down so that we can be efficient? Um, and then at the same time, meeting expectations. All of us are used to high speed of process of transactions in our personal life. And unfortunately took it for granted that maybe their work life moved slower. I think that merging of home life and work life put a huge responsibility on employers to now keep up with the pace of consumer technology and consumer processes. So I think those are three things that I saw. Yeah, no, there's some great reflections there. And I, and I just realized that, you know, the, the kind of pr the position that you're in, which is kind of a, you know, real privileged position and working with HR leaders around the world to, to really get that, that frontline view on how they're taking care of their people, right? And, uh, and that's really interesting. And, and perhaps within that whole trend that we'd seen even before the pandemic of, of HR leaders just you know, uh, becoming more strategic in terms of the or, or the importance that they had within the overall organization, right? And and forming that maybe golden triangle with the, the CEO and, and the C, uh, CFO in certain organizations. But it, it's encouraging for one on that first point that they're really looking to to look after their people, which is which is great to hear. Um, and and also, you know, you could look at that in, in a cynical way and say, well, you know, we're just trying to they're trying to just cut down their vulnerabilities in terms of business and all the rest of it. But only you can know how authentic that is. But it doesn't matter, I think, as long as they they're trying to make a change there. Then I think that's encouraging. And I think actually it's linked to that third part, right, on expectations and actually process design in a way, because then they need to think, how do you join that up? So how do you move from we want to take care of our people a lot more to actually what are the processes that we can do? To make it easier for them, and even the you know the Microsoft research out a couple of weeks ago on looking at the importance of just simple breaks for people, right? In terms of a, of a long day of virtual meetings, I love the second one though, right? It just it speaks to that whole part of our lives being so messy, and I think what you're alluding to there in a way is that you know organisations, in a way they they kind of kept it as clean as possible by not fully embracing the home life of everyone, but they've been forced into it, and I think maybe and maybe you can let me know this is maybe a follow-on question. That's difficult, right? It's really difficult to navigate that messiness and actually, you know, have the CEO on camera and, and jumping out for the Amazon guy coming to the door and, and seeing all these people in a different light. But you would hope that eventually, you know, we, we build that empathy, we, we deepen a lot of the relationships in, in a different way. And, and, and in the long run, we actually build stronger teams and we can potentially you know, just be better at work and generate more value. So how, how have you seen that, that second one in particular, that messiness of just seeing people's home lives and how do you deal with that in a business context? So I think, first of all, as, as in any organization, we look to leadership to set the example or, or to set the expectation and give us permission in a way. And one of the things that I, I had a tremendous amount of respect for at the very beginning of, of the pandemic, uh, you know, Oracle is a global organization. So for us, uh, we were seeing impacts in January or February of, of last year. The very first communication that came from our CEO, a lady named Safra Katz, was the most unusual we'd ever seen from her. Because normally when our C-suite communicates with the employee population, you know, there's 140,000 of us and we are in 200 countries. It's quite formal. 
the way our senior leadership communicates to us. And it's usually in a studio. Uh, most of our regional headquarters have a TV studio in the headquarters. It's normal for a big company. She sent us a two or three minute video from her phone on her sofa in her living room. And the lighting wasn't even that good. Yeah. Okay. And even before she uttered a word, I knew immediately she's giving us permission to be less polished if to be, be less formal if we need to be. What's important is to get the message out there. And I think whether it was deliberate or not, I think it really helped set a tone that this is okay. What's important now is are our people okay? And do they have the room to manage both their home life and their, their work life? And as long as they get their work done, we can cut them some slack, give them some latitude. And I, and I think that was really important. Um, the, the other piece around health and well-being uh, that's connected to that is, and you know, because we're in the HR software business at Oracle, we also try to lead with good HR best practices. I don't know how often we're successful, but we try. Uh, and, and one of the things that we said we were going to do um, externally was stop selling for a while and, and just check in on our customers, but internally to do the same thing. And so we diverted a lot of our typical management communications to be much more about checking in, about sharing news and information that wasn't necessarily business related, uh, and to do it with a much higher frequency, especially at the start of the pandemic. I think you know, the part of the business that I'm in has maybe five or 600 employees, uh, maybe a little bit more. And maybe the, we were used to sharing one or two major management messages a month, suddenly doing two a week. And I think that was important because people are feeling isolated. They want to feel a constant stream of communication. It also makes them feel like uh, they're connected, that everything is going to be okay. Um, managers checking in on their folks, giving them lots of latitude to figure out in the same way that we had to figure out, you know, remote working uh, situations for our people. Our people have to figure out uh, remote schooling. They have to figure out um, how they're going to manage their own households, and, and they might have a number of dependents besides children. So. I think all of that was really critical to making people feel less uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I mean, and, and you know, the CEO example there, um, as you say, giving that giving that permission, allowing people to be vulnerable. Right? She's been vulnerable herself, and 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 thereby showing that everyone can do likewise. Um, and and then that aspect of of checking in without checking up, right? Which I think is is right. important. So that that's great to hear. I mean, looking at that issue, if we stick on that area of health and well-being uh, for a moment, and, and specifically on talent, what, what's been some of the things that you've seen, um, you know, good and bad, and, and maybe in terms of talent coming through, which groups have been more vulnerable than others? Any, any reflections on that? I think it depends on, on the organization. I'll share with you a little bit um, from, from my own experience here at Oracle, but I'll also share with you maybe from the experience of some of our customers. And, and as you said earlier, we do have a unique lens because uh, there are 40 million employees around the world of about 4,000 companies who run their HR processes and services and communication on our platform. And so we have a clear view, not because we have access to what they're doing, because we don't, but because we talk to our customers all the time so I'll share a couple of examples. I think from a talent perspective, when you have a crisis, you need to know what to do next. And you need to know when the rules change, you need to know when policies change. And there's a really good example of a very old organization, which is the National Post Office of Italy, uh, mm -hmm. which is called Poste Italiane. And like any postal service, they are dispersed. Right? Every town or village has a post office. And they had to figure out very quickly, because I think, as you recall, they were the first country hit uh, in Europe with yeah. COVID, was Italy. And they had to figure out very quickly, what are we going to do differently? How are we going to deliver the post differently? What are the protocols for our people who are literally visiting every Italian? <laughs> Talk about you know wanting to isolate. You can't isolate. Um, and it's also an extremely key function. It's not going to disappear. Uh, by coincidence, they were uh, about to deploy Oracle Learning software 
and they were doing it the old-fashioned way. Okay, let's test it out on a couple hundred people, then we'll release it to another hundred, hundred. And when COVID hit, they said, well, we should not have to go phase by phase. Let's just deploy it immediately to 130,000 people. And the reason we want to do that is we don't really have any other tool to communicate constant policy changes to our people in a way where we can track who's received it, who's you know uh, understood it and, and certify them on that, that training. And so they were able to very quickly within a couple of weeks deploy this software and get all their people onto it, which is impressive, right? In a time of crisis, I think we accelerate processes, we accelerate innovation. And they had to do that because they didn't have something like that before. On the flip side, internally, again, we're very lucky because I think like a lot of modern progressive organizations, a lot of these things that were revelatory uh, for a lot of companies around the world were kind of already natural for us. You know, everyone's using Slack, everyone's using Zoom for years. And so it just became a, an increased dependency on some structures that were pre-existing. And I think that was a big benefit for us. It allowed us to not miss a beat. It allowed us to move at pace or even faster um, because it was something that we were already accustomed to. Um, and then maybe I'll add one more thing, Stephen, because you were asking me about um, talent specifically. I think, and I don't think it's solved by anyone, uh, certainly not by us, the recognition of living situation. And I mean that in a couple of different ways. If you live urban in an urban environment versus rural, the lockdowns that different countries went through are going to affect you in massively different ways. If you are living in a family situation, you're going to be affected in different ways. If you are not living with family, but you have flatmates, well, you know, I can imagine that if you're in central London or central Rome or, or in the middle of Dubai and you have three flatmates because you're in your 20s, um, how are you all going to manage Zoom calls or Teams calls eight hours a day? Uh, when maybe your your shared living space is tiny. Yeah. How are you going to manage that from an audio perspective? Uh, my wife, she's in the next room and we're regularly texting each other to keep our voices down. How does that work when you have three flatmates? <laughs> yes. So I, I think that recognition, you know, what what we are talking to a lot of our customers about, it's not the space that we're in, is how do you invest as much in understanding and planning for your employees' living situations as you might have previously planned for their office situation. And there are large companies or progressive companies that have historically invested in uh, workspace design. So if you take that seriously, how are you going to apply uh, a commensurate amount of investment in uh, remote working design, if, if there's such a thing? And what tools does that require? And how do you deploy them and who deserves them? So I think these are a number of questions that we've got to figure out. And I think in the future, uh, the way that talent uh, decides where they want to work and how they want to work may depend on how organizations are resourced to, to provision uh, support for remote working and, and literally what kind of equipment you're provided for your home. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, leads, it brings us to that whole concept of employee experience, which I know is a big part of your work and, and it's fascinating, right, within the context of the pandemic for a lot of the, the factors that you've just outlined, right, and, and especially that dynamic of home working. Um, and, and I've looked at that as well, just you know, looking at kind of my own background in design thinking and, and some projects we were involved in last year in terms of scenarios of people who were most vulnerable. And I think we all jumped to the kind of homeschooling kind of um, set of people, right? Uh, and, and I myself are in that camp and that was difficult certainly at the start. But then after talking to a lot of leaders um, uh, around the world and, and including some of your colleagues in Oracle, it was exactly that. It was exactly young talent who were maybe, you know, flat sharing in these big cities and who spent most of their life outside of that shared space, right? So they were either socializing uh, or they were in the office doing kind of long hours and then all of a sudden they're thrown into this kind of messy home working scenario. But I mean, and, and, and it showed you right there that vulnerability of these people, you know, they tied up so much of their daily experience within the, the kind of, you know, the office especially and the friendships that they made at work. We talked about this 
um, with Ronnie Kelders from L'Oreal in a previous episode and, and even looking at this whole aspect of how much should we as an employer design the home environment. Uh, uh, we looked at that also last summer. It's a fascinating concept. How much are you guys looking at this? Have you mapped out the experience for different groups or uh, are you just thinking more about on, on an informal level? What, what are you seeing uh, right now? Actually, the other thing, if you if you allow me to, to link in your case of the Italian uh, postal service, just fascinating. This uh, phase at the beginning, I think, you know, uh, I don't know if you're aware of the Zunin and Myers roller coaster, how we respond, uh, the academic paper from the year 2000, and how we respond to kind of natural disasters. In many ways, after the impact, we see that heroic phase. And I think we saw that in many companies around the world. They could really action, they could really execute, and they could really get things done in that heroic phase, right? We've got that solidarity, we work together. And then the kind of the fatigue sets in. So maybe this is also a related question. I haven't given you too many at the same time. But in terms of, you know, after the fact and, 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 and the last, maybe towards Christmas and how that dynamic changed on that vulnerability and maybe the first phases of this year, how, how was that roller coaster for people that you were talking to? How did that go? It's interesting that the, the roller coaster idea, the hero idea is a, is a good one because it always reminds me of uh, the, the famous scene in Apollo 13. You know, we have to uh, make this thing fit into that thing in this amount of time using only yeah. these parts, right? That's awesome. And, uh, and throw all the protocols and all the procedural handbooks out the window. Which is, you know, by the way, what Poste Italiana and a lot of, a lot of organizations are realizing. Yeah, we had this 20-step process for deploying software, for deploying new processes, or et cetera, et cetera. Well, we could probably cut the middle 15 out because when time was of the essence, uh, we realized we didn't need any of it, or we found a way to, to mitigate. So uh, I, I'm a big believer in that. I think your point about fatigue is a good one. And, and I think it depends on how leadership sets expectations, but speaking, um, you know, we have this phrase Zoom fatigue that we use all the time. And a lot of organizations, uh, which I admire tremendously, are even now setting up no Zoom Friday or no Zoom after 12 or after 2. And I know a lot of individual leaders within um, Oracle also have similar protocols in their teams. And I have great respect for that. Uh, it is that recognition of adrenaline deliberately is only designed to last so long. It's yeah. to help you get out of a pinch. and you cannot operate full time at that level. So at a certain point, you do have to set new processes and reset expectations to go back to a, a not a status quo ante, but, but a, the new normal, uh, which is a phrase I don't like to use, but, but you know, a new stasis. Um, and I think that if we don't do that, we really risk burning people out. Uh, we once the fire is, if not put out, it's is sort of handled. We shouldn't be in firefighting mode uh, permanently. The other thing you were asking me, Stephen, was you know uh, what are, what is Oracle for talent, or what are we seeing from other organizations? And I mentioned uh, no Zoom Fridays or no Zoom afternoons. Um, I think it varies by country. Uh, when you're a large organization in multiple countries, and, and each country has their own HR policy. Is, but for instance, I know in Singapore, uh, where we have uh, thousands of folks, um, they were invited after a certain period, come and get your office chair, come and get your monitor, come and get the stuff that you need in order to be comfortable. Um, we had employees, I have an employee in my team who um, had uh, suffered unrelated to COVID, but suffered a, a back injury uh, over the past year. And we said, well, look, what are the things that we would have normally done to provision this person if they were in the office, whatever those things are, we want to do at minimum though, that same level of investment for his home office. Uh, there's no reason why he shouldn't benefit just because we're doing remote working right now. So I think um, part of it is program level, you know, and part of it is at the individual team level to recognize uh, we should be doing whatever we can uh, within the rules or exceptional uh, to take care of our people. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, both those points, I think, lead us perfectly into uh, looking uh, squarely at entrepreneurship. You know, even that Apollo 13 case, that whole way of working, 
uh, you know, that bootstrapping, let's say, or crisis mode. In many ways, it's the way that entrepreneurs function on, on a daily basis, right? And as you say, we, we can't operate on that higher level of, of, of burn rate or whatever for forever. There, there needs to be that recovery, right? And, and with the, the interview with Malta that we talked about, you know, we recognize that we can't just be driven all the time or all consumed by the, the idea or, or the growth or the scale that entrepreneurs often are. And even the second point on how you support home employees, right? It's actually, uh, in many ways, right? It's about providing more resources because they're kind of resource poor at home, at least compared to the job that you need to do and, and all these things that you would normally have within an office environment. So I think it's a perfect prep to, to look at considering entrepreneurship and all these things that you're involved in and you've been involved in for a long time as a human capital talent experience. It's all you know, so applicable for entrepreneurship. On, on a general level and with all, you know, the trends that you're seeing, um, have you seen the pandemic kind of change people's maybe hunger for starting up on their own or are they more likely to go within the comfort of, of a large organisation? And, and also for Oracle, you know, do you try and capture that energy? Because that's one thing, right? The entrepreneurs can really bring a, a different view on a, on a problem real fantastic energy and that whole area of entrepreneurship also really does help companies grow and even big companies as long as you kind of get out of their way enough, right? So in terms of all these themes of entrepreneurship and your position within Oracle, what, what, what could you share with us in that? Well, I think definitely, uh, I mean, it's anecdotal, but even in my own uh, personal network, I've seen a number of ex-colleagues and friends who um, I knew had business ideas budding in their heads for years, uh, the past 12 months that now is the moment to pull the trigger and they're working from home or they're, they're realizing that perhaps they can incubate something while continuing to do their day job mm. and or quitting and, and starting up something new. Uh, I would, at least six people that I'm close to, uh, started their own companies in the past year. It's not a scientific research, but, uh, if in my little world that's true, I, I imagine it's it's a trend uh, in the broader world as well. I think the the notion that there's no time like the present really comes to light when you are in a crisis. And again, it's that that same thing we were mentioning earlier. Internally, I think it also gives a lot of license. And um, from small things, we've seen people trying to replace the social elements with. Uh, excuses to get together virtually. And I think things that we've done here at Oracle are similar to what I've seen happening around the world. I see videos on LinkedIn of team cooking classes and stuff like that. And certainly that's been great. I know uh, one of the ways that people have found a good excuse to bring people together is not necessarily social, but through learning, but not learning necessarily for your function, but sort of for your own personal growth. Uh, and a lot of it's been organic. And I know um, one of my colleagues runs something that she calls Making Connections, where she basically identifies experts uh, in fields outside of their day job within Oracle, to then speak to a group every week or every two weeks on their topic of expertise. And it's totally voluntary if you want to join. It's a great way to get together, but also to learn about each other. Uh, but I think also, you know, going back to process, we like so many organizations assumed or believed that uh, there's an expectation that you have to show up in person for certain things, certain important things, the important meeting or the important launch of something or the important deployment of something. Uh, and when governments around the world said that it was basically illegal to show up in person or to travel, uh, you have to find another way. One of the things, uh, like a lot of large complex organizations, we, we take a long time or we used to take a long time to close our books. So you got to get it right. And if you're large and complex, uh, it takes time. One of the really interesting intrapreneurial things uh, that, that we did was test out how fast we could close our books in a particular subsidiary at Oracle that itself has, I think, um, another dozen subs under it. I think it has 20 subs all around the world. We said, let's test out in that one part of the business how fast can we close our books mm -hmm. with a crazy goal of can we one day close our books in a day? And by the way, most organizations take three to six weeks. Right? Yeah. 
We tested it out with this group, saw what worked, and for the last three quarters, we close our books in just 10 days, wow. which is the fastest in the Fortune 500. And the reason why that's important is because the people who normally have to do that work every quarter, they also have a day job. You know, they're working on strategic projects, they have initiatives that they're doing, or they're trying to create some new business models, or they're trying to figure out how to streamline our merger and acquisition activity. So if we can automate our close, they said, well, how do we do this? The reason this all came about was because everyone was suddenly working remote. And so we had to find ways to move faster because we weren't in person. And so a natural outcome of that was speed. And, and by the way, our mission with these guys, and this is the entrepreneurial model, is 10 days is not enough. How yeah. do we get Oracle to close its books in 24 hours? That's their goal. Yeah, it's a stretch goal, right? And a half. Great insights. Thanks so much. Tell us a bit about your role with Oracle for startups. So this is very interesting. Oracle for startups is people tend to think, oh, does that mean it's an incubator or are you guys running a venture fund um, or are you uh, bringing people in house? And it's actually none of those things. It's a combination really of, of two areas where we think we can add value uh, to an ecosystem of startups. Um, and as I always say, whether it's taking care of employees, whether it's taking care of your customers uh, or supporting partners in this case, there is a selfishness in selflessness. And what I mean by that is uh, Oracle for Startups is not about investing. We don't invest in these companies, um, at least not through a direct equity format. What we do instead is provide them access to two things, uh, low cost, uh, access to our technology, extremely low cost access to our technology, and unfettered access to our people. And the idea is, so that's the selfless part and the selfish is that as they scale, they'll use, therefore buy more and more stuff, services, products, solutions from Oracle. And hopefully between, uh, good pricing and goodwill, we uh, engender a relationship with them that grows both uh, in terms of business relationship, but also uh, in terms of financial relationship as they scale up and both of us. So that's really what we're, we're doing. It's, a, it's more of an acceleration program uh, than an incubator. We start out a number of uh, these startups on free access to our cloud and then eventually low cost access. Uh, but then also to people internally, to be their mentors, to you know, give them access to product experts, connecting them also, by the way, uh, with our customers. And, and so the idea is, how do we help them create a, a cycle of innovation? Yeah. And you're giving them that, that stability, right? And that safe space. You can imagine with any startup and, and you know, as you talked talk about anecdotally within your own experience, and, and it does seem to be in these periods of crisis that we do get a much higher incidence of people just giving it a go, then there's so much uncertainty that they just need to have that, that solid platform. So I can see that adding a lot of value there. Do you do an analysis on the type of uh, companies that are coming in in terms of themes? You know, I know Larry Ellison quoted on, on the front page of that saying, thank you for picking up the torch and solving problems that other people haven't solved before. So I don't know, do you do, you do an analysis on what those problems are, what themes uh, are, are particularly uh, of interest just now for, for startups and entrepreneurs? Well, I mean, one of our mandates at Oracle is helping the world kind of understand what data they have, drawing insights from it, and then taking actions that are beneficial. And there are startups in the Oracle for startups ecosystem, probably across every industry um, and touching every aspect of life. But I think where we see some of the more exciting ones are where they are trying to leverage cutting edge tech like AI, like machine learning to do very meaningful things uh, in areas that you wouldn't normally see an entrepreneur focus. And, and I'll give you two examples. One, uh, which is near and dear to my, my heart and interest, uh, and I'm not personally involved with this startup, but, but they're definitely part of our program is a company called GapSquare. Uh, and GapSquare is focused on pay transparency, but 
with a lens of gender and ethnicity. So in other words, it's a diversity and inclusion driven organization. But what they're trying to do is approach it from a data perspective to say, let's look at pay gap. And so they've created this very cool software that lets organizations get quick insights into uh, pay and wage uh, equity. And then they provide recommendations, kind of like a consultancy, on how to affect change uh, to manage that data to where it's more equitable uh, across their employee, their customers' employee population. Um, and I believe that's a female-run organization, which is something that's very important to me. The other, the other one that I, you know, to your question about um, solving problems that other people haven't solved before, there is a very cool uh, startup in our ecosystem called Aindra. So it's A-I-N-D-R-A. And the problem that they saw is that, I don't know if you know this, one woman dies every two minutes globally from cervical cancer, okay? Well, there's nearly 6 billion people in the developing world who don't have the same level of medical testing access that the rich world does. And so what Indra is doing is they're creating uh, diagnostics for fatal illnesses that use AI at the point of care. So for instance, if you are in a developing uh, country, you're, you're in maybe a rural location, you know, your hospital doesn't have um, speedy access to uh, pap smear testing. So they've developed a product that actually uses AI to drive uh, a computational pathology-based pap smear test where a woman can go and get tested for cervical cancer. And instead of waiting several weeks for a result, instead they get in a few hours at that same location a result that says you either have normal normal or abnormal markers for this cancer. Hmm. It's very niche. It's very, very simple tactical approach that can have a massive global impact. And I think that's the sort of thing that Larry's referencing. Yeah. I love those examples, right? Because and, and this also links to um part of my conversation with with Malta and, and the other episode in this theme is that you know, we're getting so many social entrepreneurs now, right? It's, it's not just about um, exploiting a gap in the market and, and selling more stuff, um, but there's actually problems that are having an impact, as you say, in the world, and, and they're making a real difference to, to people's lives, right? And and we can reference that whole term of change makers within, within entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial space and, and social entrepreneurship. And that's just so encouraging now. I think that links to a lot of the the greater thirst um for purpose from people and and as you know you know that that is very visible and talent coming through so that's great to hear those cases listen yeah it's been great to have your insights today uh perhaps one final question if if there's anyone listening in who is either a, a solo entrepreneur or, or they're in a startup company in these initial phases um what, what advice would you give? You know, so just with all the experience you've got in this human capital uh, area, um, I don't know, what, what would you say to these guys um, in terms of helping them through? Anything to share? Well, I think, Stephen, the, the past year has been a really amazing gestation period in the world for ideation, right? We've been left to our own thoughts. I don't think uh, the world has had as much alone time as they've had uh, the past year or so. And I think it's given us an opportunity to evaluate, you know, what are our own needs? What are our goals? What are our limits? What do we wish we could fix? I think uh, I'm just thinking about my own little brain. I, I've been thinking a lot about sleep, about health, about hygiene, about food, and about automation. And I think as a global probably thought more about these things in the past year than ever before. And so uh, for, for people who are looking at what they want to solve, I think those are interesting areas to look at. And there is one area, well, there's one example I will give, uh, and I'm going to test this message with you, Stephen, and, and <laughs> if it doesn't resonate with your audience, and I'll know that it's not a message to pursue. But I think there's a confluence amongst those things, sleep, health, hygiene, food, and automation that's been solved for three very different demographics. And I think that going forward, large companies like Oracle or entrepreneurs looking for their next startup, if you can figure out how to solve some aspect of this, uh, there's something there. And, and I'll share with you those three demographics. I think it's been solved for babies, really high level executives or slash wealthy people and astronauts. Three demos 
where they have certain processes they have to go through during the day, which have been almost completely outsourced to tremendous satisfaction and delivered in multiple ways, right? Babies often by parents or, or caregivers, uh, executives by some staff who reports to them and astronauts by a staff to whom they report. So that's an interesting dynamic. And what to me is very interesting about it is that the first and third demos there, the babies and the astronauts, welcome a massive level of intrusion and complete lack of privacy in order to be happy slash successful in their mission. Yeah. Okay. So I won't, I won't draw out all the examples. Hopefully people can visualize what the life of a baby is, what the life of an astronaut is and how an executive may or may not go about his or her day. But I think if we can solve for the automation that enables those three demographics to be successful in their lives, smiling most of the time, successful in their missions, then I think we've gone a long way because for instance, astronauts is a great example of welcoming an intrusion of privacy in order to be more productive, more successful. Yeah. And yeah. if I were on a spacewalk and someone said to me, Yazad, your heart rate's at 210. You've got to stop the work, calm down, take a sip of the water, do this breathing exercise, and then get back to work. I would welcome that input. In return for that, I don't mind that there's 50 people in ground control who know what my heart rate is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how do we bring that to the working world or to the personal world? I think there's an opportunity there. I love that. I love that. I do. You know, what these are in design thinking theory, these are extreme users. And and if we solve for extreme users in a way that they satisfy the broader market, then that's the lens for, for solving and for deep problem solving. So I, I love the, the framing that you've brought there. And and hopefully that will give some people listening some some ideas to to try and solve that. We, we should knock our heads together offline and, and give it a go ourselves. Yes, I would love to do that. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen.